Yes, hello folks, welcome to the weekly Manchester United podcast. I'm your host as always, Phil Brown. My room is my excellent regular co-host, James Rhodes. James, how you doing, mate? I'm doing pretty well, and you? I don't know, I'll tell you after I get your Christmas present. Uh, we're getting close <laughs> to the deadline, so I'll just be tagging the mail. Like, Damn, my world war is just real. Well, it must be an Amazon package. It must be so big. It got know, lost on the mail. Got lost on the mail. Like, uh, <laughs> my neighbour gave me a bottle of whiskey. I'm like... Uh, I feel racially profiled here. I'm like, does it matter? So you go here and give a bottle of whiskey. I'll do. I have to go cancel an order. I think. What's that? I gotta go cancel an order I made. I think. Oh no 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 no! Trust me, we double inventory. Um, at uh, that thing is going to take an absolute punishment beating over Christmas. So a nice bottle of fifteen-year-old Macallan is nice. Very nice. Goes on my cornflakes, um. And uh, mind you, I thought that I might crack a bottle open early, um, pre Anfield this weekend. When we did this podcast last week, we said, you know, who knows what will happen in the following week? Um, the Bayern game, Liverpool game, we didn't expect to win either. United didn't win either, didn't score on either. either. However, um, what I will say is the Bayern game, you know, like, Nothing illustrated the golfing class, in my opinion, between United and the top teams in Europe and that. Yeah. Uh, yep. The other thing that concerned me is if you go back to the Copenhagen game, James, United never played with any attacking intent in that game either at home. Do you remember the first half? It was yeah. dropped dreary and I'm like, why wouldn't you try to put the Bayern Munich result right here? Like, why wouldn't you come out and show that you're desperate to stay in the Champions League? And they never really saw that at any time with United during the Champions League run. So it's probably appropriate that they're out because we're really hoping to qualify for the next round just to get knocked out in the next round. The next good team, but um, you know, makes good money though. Unfortunately, yeah, no, no, yeah, of course, yeah, it does give United some uh, leverage in the market. But um, and the other side of that is the result yesterday. I, I, I was thinking about this. Like I've had wins this year that felt like defeats. Had draws that felt like defeats. That's the first time I've ever experienced a draw that felt like a win. Maybe oh, yeah. an illustration of where we're at, but but nonetheless, based on what my expectations were, that's sort of how I felt after the game. Yeah, me too. And you know, I, I mentioned last week when we were talking that I probably would take a pragmatic approach. Yeah. You know, to these two games, and I think the positive of the Liverpool game is it showed that. They obviously can do the basics and do them quite well. Even with players missing, even with players out, sometimes you build on that foundation. And it's sort of like I would hope that that kind of game can be a bit of a springboard to say we do know how to defend. We can defend. We can defend against one of the better attacking teams in Europe. We can defend. We can hold our own. I I think – a huge factor in that was Rafael Varane, I thought, was maybe his best game at yeah, United yeah. defensively uh, after being out for some time, you know, not regularly in the team for some time. I thought he was incredible there. Um, he was all over the place. But so were a lot of players. I thought Luke Shaw had a good game. I thought Johnny Evans, there was nothing, there was nothing to, to say wrong yeah. with, his, with what he did either. Varane mm-hmm. was more noticeable, but... I don't think Johnny Evans put a foot in wrong against Liverpool away. I mean, that's yeah. not what we expected. Uh, I thought Diogo Dallo actually had a good defending game, um, a good game defending. I thought he had uh, – that red card was 
ridiculous. Absolute nonsense. I have no idea how that was acceptable. And then, I mean, I can understand giving a yellow and, you know, for all of that, but in the 94th minute of a game like this to give two yellows back to back for, for the emotion getting the better of someone is unbelievable. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I don't know if they can rescind it. It's the type of, it probably is the type of one they can challenge, but I don't think they will. Um, it is utterly ridiculous, but otherwise it didn't, it was late enough. It didn't have an effect on the game, uh, from an outcome standpoint. Uh, I thought the team defended as a unit really well. I thought that Kabi Manu was fantastic, impressive. Um, He's the only player we've seen in that midfield who will get the ball and show a bit of poise as the press closes in on him, take a turn, take a touch, move it around, manipulate his opponents and find the space for a pass. Uh, he had a few moments like that through to Anthony, through to Garnacho was an incredible ball we haven't seen from anyone but Pogba or Bruno in the last 10 years from the midfield. Uh, very impressive. Uh, so all of that was good. All of that was good where I was really happy with how they performed as a as a unit, as a team that didn't look like a group that had given up. Um, probably should have scored a couple of goals as well, if I'm honest. Yeah. And uh, And for me, that's where I still see the biggest concern because I don't think that there's a player in that team, aside from Marcus Rashford, who is out of well out of form at the moment, but who probably has to play every game because for reasons we that I think we want to discuss, um, that is capable of scoring goals. Uh, Rasmus Hoyland has really not got off the ground as a goal scorer. Uh, I think it's going to take him a while, especially in the Premier League without the spaces to run into. I think it's going to take him a while. Garnacho, I, th- I thought was very, very quiet, but... He, like Rashford, one of the positives, I think, brings unpredictability when he's attacking a defense in terms of which way he's going to go, what he's going to do. You can't put your finger on it. Uh, Anthony, though, is the opposite, and I think is still the biggest problem with the attack is everybody knows exactly what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Every single time. There's, There's even a moment where he actually went right once, and Trent practically fell over himself. Because he went, you know, the other direction. It's like a deal in Trium when he goes right. You can see yeah. that portraying every instinct <laughs> in him. Yeah. Uh, because he just does not want to go there. Like you can just see yep. that he's going against the grain, that he wants to overcome, you know, this, I don't know if it's trauma or whatever, but he just does not want to go onto his right foot. Yep. And and even when he did that, unfortunately, Rashford was free across the goal. And he couldn't put the cross with his right foot. He had to cut back immediately afterwards. And then he missed and put it behind Hoyland and uh, and Rashford. So frustrating in that respect because I just, you know, it can seem like picking on him. I feel like if if he went to a team that had Conte as a coach and played as a left wing back, he might be fantastic because he has great defensive work rate. He was very tenacious defending. But... I just can't see it in this. It, it's so predictable, and it's it's really frustrating. As a, I mean, it's three goals, three games in a row without scoring a goal. Now, born with Bayern and Liverpool, um, with Marcus Rashford not starting um, after he'd been on the right for a little while. There's three games in a row with zero goals. That's that's a problem. So, we Anthony, I think you can get him to defend with discipline for a game. Whether he can yeah. do that consistently, I don't yeah. know. Because it's something that. 
wingers forward players don't want to do they don't like defending it's yeah. you know it's it's not how they, they don't get caught but you can eventually evolve into that like Ashley Young did yep. but what I'm looking at with Anthony I'm going like he's not the first player to be a one-footed winger Ryan Giggs mm-hmm. was very one-footed the difference is though Ryan Giggs played on the left and when you're one-footed like that to me I think Ten Hag isn't doing him any favors playing him on the right because when yeah. you're on the left, as a one-footer, you can hit the ball, you can cross the ball early. You know, you can get down the line. You could. There's, there's a number of different things you can do because you're on your strong side. But when you're playing on the right and that ball comes to his feet, he has to stop and slow the game down because he can't let the ball go down his right-hand side. So he stops, stops the attack, slows it down, then is either going to cut across the defender or shoot into the far corner. The problem is you're this is where the most condensed area of the pitch is. Once you get into that position, and then you want to cross the ball. You've delayed the cross too long. You know, you're talking, you know, the split second. You know, you put the ball across early, yeah. you, know, you give your striker a chance. But once you delay it to let a team get set, it's very difficult to find that space. And so to me, I mean, th- there was a moment where Rashford got down the line, put the ball across. I think it was Hoyland and someone else was right on the edge of box. Um, and... Again, this is the, the issue is when you wait too long to do that, it it you know all it takes is one or two a second yep. and that changes everything. And so when you're playing a left winger, left footer winger on the right, there's only one place he can go because yep. he's always going to cut inside unless he can use his right foot. But if you play him on the left, I know it stretches the game more, but there are different things you can do. And so to me, I just think you know I'm really worried about him. And yeah, he's me too. me because yeah. he's so predictable. And to me, uh, just, just lastly on this, James, if you remember when Wan-Bissaka marked Matoma. Yep, yep. And he showed Matoma on to his left-hand side every time. Matoma was right through the pen on the left. And Matoma never really recovered from that. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, he's still a good player, but that to me really showed him up for me that this is a one-footed player. And once players work you out on that, they're going to show you on to your weak side every time because yeah. they know that you're, you're going to go left. So they're going to show you down the line, show you down the line. If you cut across, go to the ball. This is really easy coaching. So to me, and Ten Hag going, this is a big problem because yeah. Hoyland, if you, to give a quick analysis, Evan Ferguson at Brighton, inconsistent, in, out, in, out, in, out. You'd score three goals and then not score for another three games. That's what you get with young strikers. Yep. At Brighton, you can get away with that, you know, um, also because they were really smart in Banjo Pedro. But at Brighton, you can get away with that. The problem with United when you're not a developmental club is you don't get away with that. You know, you can mm-hmm. lose three games at Brighton. It's not a big deal. United, it's a crisis. And you can see Hoyland has almost no confidence in front of goal. I mean, he should have scored. And maybe if he has a couple of goals behind him. He does score. But to me, I think part of the problem is that he doesn't get service. But this is a big problem with Ten Hag's forward plays. Uh, I mean, I have to say, lastly, it was a terrible game of football. Liverpool were dreadful. United weren't great to watch. But United didn't have to be great. They just had to get a yeah. result. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and, and and just speaking to that final point on that unpredictability, you know, the moment you said about Rashford makes sense because that is one of the reasons why I also believe the real, the biggest problem is I don't think Marcus Rashford's very good on the right either. Um, 
he's okay with his left. He's quick enough that when he plays on the left, he can go both ways and get down to the line and cross it in, or he can go right and cut in. On the right, he's not confident enough dribbling with his left to cut in, so he's always going one direction. It, it is an issue. Like, you know, Marcus Rashford should be on the left. Garnacho should be on the left. But there's only one striker in Rasmus Hoyland because Anthony Martial is not it. And Anthony is is not it on the right. It, it is a problem. It, it's amazing after all these years that we still have this issue uh, the, on the right side of the pitch. The other thing you get with inverted wingers teams, and it's a problem for central strikers, now it's not so much a strike, an issue if you're a false nine when you drop deep, is you end up attacking very similar spaces, right? So yeah. and when inverted wingers caught inside, the channels in between the centre-back and the full-back are now also being occupied by your inverted wingers. So as a striker, your area decreases. So yep. I, th- I think, you know, to me, you know, you can make it work. You know, City did it a while. Gabby Jesus is a false nine. You know, they had central strikers, uh, inverted wingers. But when you lose that width, obviously they want it from the fullbacks. But the fullbacks are not great crossers of the ball either. Wan-Bissaka is poor cross of the ball. Dallow is yep. poor cross of the ball. Luke Shaw is not bad. Um, but you know, if you're you have to get that width from somewhere, and United are just so slow at getting the ball in their box. So I think part of the problem also for Holland is he, you know, this he's occupying a really small space where it's actually you know a striker zone. Yep. Yeah, I I agree. It's it's it is tiny, and and it, right, the expectation of playing those inverted wingers is that your fullbacks are going to overlap and, and take up the extra spaces, but uh, the fullbacks haven't been productive or successful in that uh in that vein and and so we're not really getting anything from it and, and then it squeezes onto the and it makes us easier to defend because it's so narrow in the final third then uh it is it is easier to defend that and and the moments when the fullbacks do overlap properly or or even sometimes underlap or invert you know the other way we often see goals come out of it um mm-hmm. we saw that you know in the, in the copenhagen away game we saw that uh Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was Everton, you know, even though it took a great goal from Garnacho to do it, it was a good play to get to the moment of the Dallow cross. But uh, that is an issue. It's like the, the fullbacks have to be more productive too, no doubt. See Chelsea, you know, Garnacho put the ball in. I mean, I know yes. uh, for McTominay, for but uh, yeah, I know it's definitely not uh, great for a striker. But nonetheless, uh, Per was in the eye catching performance. He said so on his podcast last week. And I was thinking about it after the game. We said, you know, United just need to go there, play spoiler, be pragmatic, and, you know, just make sure they defend. And I said, I'm not sure they can do that. Um, and this is the, the bipolar nature of this team, because one week yep. <laughs> they can't defend, and one week they can't attack. They can rarely do both. Um, but you have to give them credit because Liverpool were poor. But I think part of the reason why Liverpool were poor is because United didn't allow them the spaces. Yeah. And, you know, Anana didn't have a lot, a lot to do. And, um, you know, we'll, we can talk about Amrabat in a minute. But um, I thought that they defended with discipline. They really shot Liverpool down. They didn't give them any chances. They frustrated them. Yep. And they played with discipline. They held their shape. And like the only thing I was saying before the game is, I don't care if you lose. Just make sure that you can look United fans in the eye after the game. Yeah. Don't, don't go there and surrender. Okay, go there, play for the shirt, go there, play for United, go there, play for the fans. And at the end of that game, I felt I don't really care that it was an ugly game. Um, 
I'm 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 happy with that result. Yeah, yeah me too. I, I it wasn't a, a game that I thought about much afterwards on the rest of the Sunday, you know, here. It was just it was nice. I, I felt I felt good. Like like you said, it almost felt like a win in that respect. I just felt good. And it's always nice to hear uh, Virgil van Dyke whining about how uh how United are playing. That's always a positive to take away from it too. Because, you know, going in and frustrating them, that is the point. I mean, that was the game plan. That's a good strategy at Anfield just to do that. You know, the well, crowd was dead. You took them out of the game pretty early on. Well, here's the it. thing about, about this, right, with Van Dijk. Mm-hmm. So, Ten Hag's played Liverpool three times. Mm-hmm. He's lost once, right? Uh, beat, them in, beat them at Old Trafford. I mean, I'm not going to count the Bangkok Cup, right? So, beat them at Old Trafford. Drew away. Uh, so Klopp's record against Ten Hag was out of three games, 1-1. One, one, okay, Which, of course, mm-hmm. was the catastrophe. Yep. Ten Hag's job is not to go there and make it easy for Liverpool to score. Mm-hmm. Right? If you don't have a quality to break a team down, then fine. I mean, I've never heard United fans turn around and say... Sorry, my dog's... Never heard, heard United fans turn around and say um, that Crystal Palace... Didn't come and try and win the game, right? Or the, you know, the <laughs> down. Like, I mean, you have to acknowledge that that's our own fault. You can't break a team mm-hmm. down, you can't break a team down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that is what you go to do. Obviously, United are walking into that game as the underdog, so that's Their fine. Frustrate the opponent, injured. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. What are you gonna do? I mean, Liverpool are sitting top of the league teams, United are missing 13 first team players, United went to that game. And all the talk before the game was Liverpool were going to massacre United. Mm-hmm. There was actually a skip before the, the, the well, I mean, a bit before the game where they were talking to Rory McIlroy, what's another golfer account. And one of the things that started to irritate me a bit was the arrogance of a lot of Liverpool fans. You know, it's going to be this, it's going to be this, it's we're going to do this, we're going to do this, it's going to be. And you could see, you know, I, I was watching UK coverage, I'm not going to say hi, I'm not self incriminating, but um, with Roy Keane getting irritated at Virgil van Dijk over yeah. his attitude towards United as if they're, you know, United are going through a difficult period. But as I said, this is, this is United finished above Liverpool three times in the last six years, right? Yeah. This arrogance that they were the only football club trying to win this game and that, you know, in the implication that Liverpool are, you know, United are anti-football and Liverpool, are, you know, are so, so much further ahead of United and, I don't understand mm-hmm. where the arrogance comes from. Yeah, me neither. But uh, you have to say that, that that I think that's partially why it feels like a win. You walk away from it, you know that Liverpool fans and team are feeling a lot worse than we were yesterday by the end well, of it. Well, they were supposed to win. Yeah. They were Yo, well, that's the thing. If you're expecting like a 3-0, a 4-0, and an N-0-0, you've made up in expectation-wise a four-goal margin. That's pretty good. They were dreadful. They were really bad. <laughs> they were they really were bad. Really, they really were really bad. Yeah, you know, and I think Nunez, based on how Dallo was sent off, I think Nunez probably should have been sent off in the first half too. So we'll get to that because I, I do want to talk about that because yeah. um, I, I'll stay with that actually. So here's my frustration with this. Um, when you see Dermot Gallagher doing this thing with Sky, mm-hmm. the one thing this show has accomplished is demonstrating high, maybe 90% of this is about opinion. Yeah, it's and there's no yeah. consistency when it comes down to making calls, right? Yep. And it always seems on the subjective side, United come out the wrong end, 
of the subjective side. You know, I think yeah. about the goal against Fulham, the subjective offside. You always, always come yeah. out the wrong end of this. Bruno Fernandes was booked. That missed the Liverpool game as a result of dissent. Um, if a referee gives a decision and you are aggressive, confrontational, or abusive towards a referee, you 100% deserve to be punished. Yep. If you show irritation, whatever, you know, you throwing your arms about whatever, but it's not, there's no abuse directed at a referee, that to me is not dissent. A player yep. doesn't have to like your decision. Okay, in fact, they can show frustration. This is the 94th and a half minute. He just gave a throw in five yards from United. And it was wrong, too. It was a bad Uh, call, too. Liverpool score from that. Yeah. The the conversation today is totally different. We're talking Arsenal, United. You know, the conversation is totally different. Michael Oliver will feel no responsibility. The arrogance of that. The idea that football should have, footballers should have mostly divorced themselves, that they, I'm going to give you a wrong decision, and you are not allowed to show any frustration whatsoever. Fine if it's directed at the referee. Fine if you're abusive or aggressive or confrontational, then you deserve it. But if you've got a player going, you know what? Um, Nunez's was directed yeah. at the officials. Legitimate, yep. legitimate dissent. Yep. Um, so... These are two situations. In one sense, one is worse than the other because Nunez yeah. was legitimately booked for a quite bad foul. Then yeah. kicked the ball away, right? Yep. Which Bookshaw was booked for against Chelsea. Yep. Then proceeds to give clear contempt and dissent yep. towards officials for his yellow card. So Diogo yep. Dallo gets sent off for showing frustration, which was the same action, by the way, that he was booked for. Right? Yeah, which is crazy. the same thing is absolutely beyond belief. Yeah, it is. I mean, if, if you if you're applying it consistently, then Diogo Dalo did one thing, one action, which was yeah. to be upset. And if you want to call it dissent, fine. It was still one action. It was one small sequence. Nunez did three different things: a foul, kicking the ball away, and you know, clapping at the official. Yeah. Ironically, and and that's three actions. That's three yellow card offenses in one sequence. It is it is nonsensical, and it's clearly, you know, about how the official feels, whether they feel offended by it. Now, I think that Nunez's was directed at the the linesman on the it side, makes, which matter. shouldn't matter. But what it does show you is Mike Oliver didn't feel offended by it, so he didn't show the second yellow for it. Yeah, it was personal. It was a hundred percent personal. With the with Dallo, he felt personally offended yeah, by whatever Dallo was doing. Yeah. Whereas it was to the linesman, and the linesman's not going to show him a yellow, so he doesn't care. It, yeah. That is 100% totally incorrect and, and completely wrong, and is not the way, because it's not about whether you have your feelings hurt. It's about what objectively happened. And in, in it, it just it's nonsensical. It is. And 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 they, they got to sort it out. Um, I don't know how, but it does, like you said, the, in the review of the officials and uh, going and talking about all of them, it, it very much shows that the vast majority of these decisions are still subjective Ooh. and can be viewed by peop- many people different ways. And that's how they're applying. hundred percent. And that's the thing, James, when you give people par is um, they can abuse that. But to me, a referee abused his, uh, his, you know, his authoritative ability because um the fact that he sent Dallo off because he could, not because he should, you know, yep. that to me is troublesome because 
when you when you turn around you know to start of the season saying that um, we're given these new directives for descent you know the immediately booking record the problem with that is that again you're talking about something that's subjective you know what is descent it's not very clearly defined okay and whether someone takes offense all depends on the mood all depends on so many variables whether you actually get sent off for it or not and this is what frustrates managers i mean if, if darwin nunez is sent off at the time that that happens that's a whole different football game whole yep. different football game right all of a sudden yep. the momentum shifts you know all of a sudden you know the outcome's totally different you united could have easily won and won that game right that is a key moment in the game. So you can't referee the game different in the 94th minute than what you would have done yeah. in the 34th minute. And when you're listening to Dermot Gallagher's explanations to why he made those decisions, you, you just sit there and you go, this is, you know, it reminds me of when he was trying to explain why uh, the Arsenal got a penalty against Spurs. I think it was against Romero. And uh, why United didn't get a penalty for the same, for the, exactly the same thing. Yes, yes. Just waffle and nonsense where you're like, this is, you know, complete and utter bullshit. And you go, yep. this is what's frustrating is that United always seem to come out the wrong end of these. And yep. to me, it's, 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 it, that is such a ridiculous decision to me that yep. I, I, I mean, it, it's just such an abuse of power to me. Absolutely is. And something they have to sort. And that I think, um, you know, obviously the managers and the teams need to be able to talk about more, a bit more public. What about uh, Amrabat, my friend? You know, he's, unfortunately, I think he just is what a, not what everybody thought he was, but what was expected that I thought he was um, from, from what I'd heard. And my opinion on it was not based on a personal thing. I've, I've never watched him really outside of the one game in the world cup, really or a few games in the World Cup because of all of that. But um, I'd never watched him. But the information that was given to me was that it was pretty unimpressive. He's slow, clunky for England, at least at this level of play. And and I think that, unfortunately, that's he, – he looks like a guy who walked onto the pitch from the stands and put a United kit on and had a runabout. And that's what he looks like for the most part. Um which sounds mean, but it just is what it is. I, I, I'm completely unimpressed with him as a professional footballer. I think if I was going to try to defend him, I'd say a couple of things. I would say that um, I would have said exactly the same about Casemiro if I was judging him on this season. Sure. Right? I would have said, yeah. you know, if I'd never heard of Casemiro, he came in the United and, you know, I'd say that that guy's not good enough. That guy's too yeah. slow, he's too cumbersome, he can't do this, he can't do this, he can't do this, he's a liability in the, in the field. Mm-hmm. I think partly in United's midfield, it's a hard position to play because um, they're constantly overloaded. And uh, it's not a balanced midfield and their transitions are poor. So there's not good movement, there's not a lot of... Um, you know, uh, synchronicity, you know, if you need, you need to play very individually. So I think it's it's a difficult midfield to look good in. Um, what concerns me is it looks a bit slow. He gets caught in possession quite a bit. Um, and, um, you know, I know that position is conducive to yellow cards, but to me, I think there's certain parts of the game that would concern me. But, like I said, pretty much everyone's looked like that. You know, it's midfield with maybe the exception of Kabi Manu. You know, Kabi Manu, yeah. who, who obviously is very different. We'll get them in a second. But, you know, um, 
I just I, I, I just don't think Ten Hag's found the right balance in that midfield that complements all the players' capabilities. Um, that being said, you know, if 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 um, you know, I wasn't de- devastated. You know, didn't say so better. I wouldn't be devastated if they didn't say um, Amrabat and. Um, I'd be very. I'd be have a good game for me. Where I'm impressed, ma'am. Yeah, I'd be very concerned if they did, because I don't think United can keep loading up on very mediocre at best yeah. players who are extremely limited. Because that's how we keep ending up in this situation. You know, I'm I'm not saying they even had good games, but when you look at who Liverpool bring off the bench yeah. when they're struggling, young players, things like that. But when they're bringing on. You know, Curtis Jones, I think, is an academy product for them, right? Um, he's far better than Amrabat, than these players, you know. And, you know, the, the issue you take with people like McTominay and Amrabat is neither of them can consistently complete a five-yard pass forward. It's just the basics. Like, they cannot hit the ball forward correctly. It, it It's clunky. There was two, The thing that concerns me most of all is those little things like, you know, Amrabat will get kind of under pressure, turns to hit it back, and he completely misses the player he's passing to by a good few yards. And you're like, what is this? Like, this is this is unbelievable. And McTominay does the same thing, not usually when he's going backwards, but if he attempts to go forwards. And you'll see the same thing when he picks it up to try to turn and run the ball, and it bounces off his other foot and goes flying back to the defense. And they both did that multiple times. And it's like, these are basics. These are extremely limited players in their skill set. And some of the things they do, they're very good at, but they're so limited that as soon as they're outside their comfort zone a bit, they're so weak. And it's, and it's that predictability problem. Same as Anthony, the same criticism I'd give though. I think he's probably better than both of them just from a physical level is quickness and things, but they cannot be so limited with a skill set because it makes it so easy to play against them. You know, if you press McTominay, what's going to happen. He's going to go backwards or he's going to lose the ball. You know if you press Amrabat, what's going to happen? He's going to go backwards or he's going to lose the ball. And, you know, that leads to someone like Kavi Manu, where that is the exact opposite. You have no idea what he's going to do, and he shows that. You cannot predict what you're what he's going to do if you press him, don't press him. He's it, That's, that's I think, the, the biggest difference is, you know, when, when you're looking at this is, are you defending against one thing? That someone is going to do or two things or are you defending against almost an infinite possibility of what they can do with the ball and so i i, I want to i would really be disappointed to see united sign very limited players and and add yeah. them to this team um when they need space in in the team and in the wages i think um mctominay of all the positions i've seen him play for united he's probably best in behind a striker because you can yeah. score goals and because in that position you aren't spending a lot of time on the ball. You are receiving the ball in dangerous areas, one touch shoot, one touch pass. You're not, you know, picking the ball up deep, trying to dribble 10 yards, pick, lift your head, find a pass. I think he has some utility in that position in behind the striker because he can get you goals. The problem is what you have to do to accommodate that position. And is that, you know, if you try to play McTominay deeper, becomes a problem because the skill set's not suited to being put under pressure. You'll give a ball away. You know, he's um, limited in that sense. And yeah. so this is why top midfielders cost a lot of money is because uh. they're the people that control your game. You know, if you have midfielders that lack the ability to pick passes, lack the ability to play under pressure, 
um, like the skill set, you know, to to keep the ball, then you have a problem. If you look at United pre Bruno Fernandez, they were solely a counter attacking team because they couldn't dominate mm-hmm. the ball, right? So Solskjaer's team was all about, you know, the team that finished second was all about counter attack, quick hit you on the break, on the break, score. So they couldn't dominate possession. Now that season, they signed Fernandez, they were really poor because yeah. um, they couldn't control games. Then Bruno comes in. Second half of the season, when, when Fernandez and United were closer to the relegation zone and what they were at top four, they end up finishing top four because now United have much more dimension to them. They can control the mm-hmm. game and have the ability to play with the midfielder. Um, <clears throat> and I think um, this is part of the problem when you play people like when they play Fred, when you play McTominay, when you play Amrabat, mm-hmm. these players, is that they're fine squad players in certain unique situations, right? Yeah. But they're not players that should be starting in your midfield. You know, they're fine if you want to bring McCombie on the last 10, 15 minutes to defense that pieces or you want to get a goal, that's fine. Right? But to start games with the, with, with these players, yep. you know, to me, I think, um, especially against the top teams, you know, those are where their limitations are going to get exposed. So for me with McTominay, what you have to do to fit him in the squad is to, it, it costs too much. Because you got to mm-hmm. play deep, in my opinion, otherwise you get caught. And Ten Hag doesn't want to do that. I don't think Amrabat's quick enough. But the other positive is um, Manu. So you know, this is a kid has already played away at Goodison. You know, played bit at Galatasaray, played away at Anfield, played <clears throat> away at St James's. He's a player where if the people ahead of him, the front line, play well his ratings will go up. If they don't, you know, it's hard to utilize his skill set whenever the front three don't move. But um, arguably in those three games, you know, it's not much saying, you know, this about what happened at Newcastle because, you know, we're dreadful, but he may have been United's best, if not one of the best players, you know, the best player in those three games. For a kid mm-hmm. that is, to have that composure is unbelievable. It is. It is. And, and it's, I mean, it's necessary. Too, it's it's good to see. I mean, we haven't had loads of products come through. Obviously, as as many as we should have in the academy that have been United level that have been able to stick around at United level. We've got a lot of players that are going around the, the Premier League and other leagues playing right now. I think more than anybody. But you know, like you we've talked about before, the job of the academy is not really to do that. It's to produce a couple really good players for the for the top level team and and to get them in there. And we saw a few breakthrough, obviously, with Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood. Um, we haven't seen a midfielder, really, a good midfielder come through in uh, 20 years. How long has it actually been since a good midfielder came through United's School, Academy? Maybe, or you say, um, yeah, I mean, I it's been ages. Since then. Is that 30 years? <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to think since then, you know, we're talking Dan Fletcher came through. Um, which I think would be would qualify. He's a very good player, very, very suitable. Yeah, yeah, but it's me, he, was, I, he was limited, but he was a player I think had a place, obviously, in a successful team. The, yeah. yeah, no, and, and they're hard positions because these are, yeah. like I said before, these are key positions. So to break yeah. through as a central player, whether you're a center back or center midfielder, is really yeah. hard. It's easier if you're a winger or a full back. But um, to do that in the center of the pitch at a top club is really hard to do. Yeah, I mean, Pogba, but he left, right? That would probably mm. be the last good player who came out of the midfield in the academy, but he left. 
uh, pretty early on. So it's we don't have a lot of them. We we have not produced a lot of them, and you've seen that weakness in United because even under Sir Alex Ferguson in the last five eight years, didn't buy midfielders, did not progress on on adding midfielders. It's been a hole for such a long time, coming you know through the team that um, that's why it's very exciting because it is probably what he is doing. It's probably one of the most difficult positions in the game. I think yeah. that it's it's up there. I think that I think that an out and out number nine is about as difficult, which is why you see so few top top strikers. But uh, but those are the two positions. You know, you, there's not a lot of Rodri's out there in the world. You know, there's not a lot of players like that or or Busquets or anything. The thing is, when you bring a young player in, this is true of pretty much any anything in the world when you adjust levels. Um, yep. What you see typically is a nervousness, right? Because you know they're afraid of making mistakes. The exposure is yep. massive. You know there's pressure. There's also about convincing yourself you can play at this level. All of those things that play into it. You know it takes you a while to adjust to play at that level. Have the confidence, the belief in yourself. What Manu does really well is really remarkable. I mean, look, as I've said before, ability gets you to this level, but when you look at the things that he does well that are almost not coachable, his awareness of what's behind him, how quickly he moves the ball, how he knows what he's going to do with the ball before he gets it, how he sees things from a peripheral vision over his shoulder yep. in the corners. I mean, you saw that ball with Garnacho, beautiful ball. You saw it at Goodison where he's clipping balls into channels and stuff. Uh, he doesn't overplay it. He doesn't delay it. He sees it quickly, you know, and even sometimes that'll pass in triangles to get out of holes. Yep. When you're playing with your back to the opposition quite a bit and that ball's coming into your feet, one, you need to have incredible technical ability because you do not have the space to make a mistake. And if you make a mistake yep. in the center of the field, you're dead. Okay, yep. this is where so many, you know, if you can make a mistake out wide, this is why it's easier for young players to come through in wide areas. Usually, there's quite a bit to do before they score, right? But on, yep. you know, when Bill Jones came through United, they didn't want to play him as a center back, they wanted to play him as a right back and all that before they trusted him in center areas. So, to have the ability to play in a central position, especially a deeper central position, you know, that is incredible because that is a very, very difficult position to play. And it's a, a position that is is set up to make mistakes in. And you need incredible mental resilience and confidence to be able to play that position, especially in a United team that's not playing well. Yep. If Manu was at a Brighton or something like that, um, you know, he would develop really fast because he's allowed to make mistakes. There's another pressure he needed. You know, it's different. It's a hard place to develop because there's so much pressure on you. Um, so the the stuff that you can coach, the composure, the confidence, you know, all those things, spatial awareness, you know, is unbelievable from this kid. Really, really exciting. And to if, if you can do it at Anfield, you can do it good as soon. And you could do it at Galatasaray, you can do it, you know, at Newcastle, you can do it anywhere. So, you yep. know, that's a really tough test of games to, 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 to establish yourself in. It has been magnificent, really, really encouraging. Probably the best performance of any midfielder I've seen in United this season. Yeah, probably. It was it was so settled, so calm, and so composed. And that's yeah. what you need. You know, that, that lack of hot potato uh, is something that's been missing, the composure. And uh, what I really like to see is the way that we set up in preseason, when he got injured, unfortunately, against Real Madrid. But to have him, Casemiro, and Bruno in the midfield together, talking about finding the balance, 
you know, in terms of finding a good midfield balance, that would probably be when Casemiro returns for me, the best. Um, I think you'd have defensive coverage for Minu in a similar way that even though Amrabat wasn't great at it, that he did provide with Liverpool to have an extra body. Um, I think then, you, you know, you have Bruno as an outlet to pass it to, to help you push up the pitch. You can get forward with Casemiro covering. Casemiro can get forward like he tends to do with having actual coverage behind him. I think that would pot potentially be the best midfield we could put together. And I, and it might even be less pressure on, on Mainu in that way, having someone like Casemiro who provides extra coverage and extra attention and all of that next to him. So hopefully we do get to see that this season and see that develop because it was promising in uh, in preseason uh, when they did that. It was one of the more promising things that I think we'd hoped to see more of. Um, you know, and then you can swap in someone like Mason Mount there or put him on the right side, which where he's played before. Um, if you're struggling with that right side, you know, attacking area and, and try to get something going there because he's a very energetic player, um, Mason Mount. So hopefully that uh, that that uh, improves. And because, uh, yeah, I, I, I would like to see a lot more of, of Kabi Manu. And I think there's some good ways to to see it. Another story that came out last week um, was, uh, and you actually mentioned this to me the day before it actually made the press, was the Green Potter um, link. Yep. And, um, you know, one of the things that we've said in this podcast is it's entirely appropriate for any sporting director or any owner to look at contingencies um, if in the event that your manager leaves or something happens. It's typically a three, four year you know, tenure, I know Klopp and, and, and Guardiola have been there longer, but the average is about three, four years. So it's entirely appropriate to do like contingencies just in case. Um, Green Potter is someone that I like very much. I think in his defence, Chelsea's a very, very difficult football club to go manage. I think they both made wrong choices. I think they picked the wrong coach and he picked the wrong yeah. coach. And, you know, Brighton is a brilliant football club set up for a coach for, to manage really well because they do everything else really well. Um, you know, so I think he benefited from having a fantastic setup. Uh, I think if this if Green Potter came to Manchester United without some type of overhaul to Sporting, um, it said I would say no because those players yep. would throw Green Potter on the bus the first time they had a poor patch because he has no track record and because he failed at Chelsea, it'd be easy for them to, to you could just see 18 months from now, his coaching methods, everything else would be questioned. You know, he he lacks the charisma, you know, to manage big players. You know, you could you can write the stories yourself oh, yeah. exactly what would happen. Um with a proper sporting structure who knows? I think he's a very, very good coach. But um you know I I I, I still would have concerns about him being united without a proper sporting structure being behind him. hundred percent. And, and, you know, the thing is, is if, you know, it goes and at the end of the season, and, and I want to be clear on this from an information standpoint, I, I think Ten Hag will be here the whole season. I think mm -hmm. he will be here the whole season. I don't think he's going to get sacked. I think there's a few reasons for that, which is, as we talked about before, one, there's nobody really with the remit to sack him at Manchester United right now. Um, Patrick Stewart as the CEO is not going to come in and sack him. And it's not because Patrick Stewart isn't, you know, an, an influential person at United. He's just, he's never even worked in this area. He's a legal guy. He's not a football guy, not in the slightest. He would have no familiarity with that situation and that side of things. 
John Murtaugh can't sack him because he's practically tied at the hip to him as far as a, his appointment and all of that goes. It would be actually yeah. quite a black mark against John Murtaugh, and I don't think he has the power to do that right now. Uh, and then there's the cost that goes with it too. Then there's the factor of even, even um, you know, uh, Ineos, they're not wanting to make a change midseason. You have to look at how it works out. Interim managers don't really work, first of all. Um, I don't remember the last time an interim manager really worked out successfully in, in any respect. Sometimes they can salvage things, but may, usually it's more in the case of someone's trying to avoid relegation or something dramatic like that um, to claw them back out of it. But I think there's just been stats to show that most of the time the, in the during midseason, the manager changed, changes nothing. And you end up practically in the same place as, as you would have been anyway. Uh, certainly under Ralph Rangnick, I don't think in the end we were any better off than if we'd actually just stuck with Ole to the end of the season. As far as results goes, I think it would have you would have gone through that kind of struggle, turned it around a little bit, and, and ended up in that same sixth position by the end of the year, which is where we were. But the expectations were higher before Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got sacked. So I don't think it really makes much sense to hire an interim. Um, I don't think it makes much sense to, you know, I think it makes the most sense to let Ten Hag see out the season and see how he does and, and judge him then, which is how Ineos plan to approach this. There's also the factor of cost, costs an exorbitant amount of money to sack a manager at this point in the season, a lot. Uh, United are under FFP pressure and things like that as well, no matter what. Um, they can come in, Ineos, and invest and raise that loss cap that that we've spoken about before from 15 million right to like 105 or 110 million it's like a 90 million difference that they can come in that makes a big difference but you still have that pressure and you still have that cost there so yeah i don't think that eric ten will be leaving during this season uh you know i things could get so bad but we're kind of in the period where it feels like things could get so bad we're already out of the champions league mm. We just had Liverpool away. I don't see that it can get much worse. I think we could bounce around that sixth to eighth position for the rest of the year, probably. You could argue that maybe he was a little too far ahead of schedule getting United into the Champions League for this season with last season. Maybe, you know, a more realistic position for Ten Hag would have been where Liverpool were, finished fifth and continue yeah. growth. Um because I don't think United really are, you know, especially with injuries to Champions League team. But what, what was really interesting, forgive me for not correctly attributing this, giving legit legit credit to the right account, because I can't remember who, who tweeted it, but they showed Ten Hag's record against versus Arteta after 86 games. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arteta has 157 points, you know, Ten Hag got 168, you know, 50, 53 wins for Ten Hag, 47 for um, Arteta. And this uh, for Klopp after Klopp's second season after 86 games, Ten Hag has 186 points. Uh, Klopp after 99 games, so another 13 games more, had 10 points more, 178, 53 wins for Ten Hag versus 50 a Klopp wallet. So you know you could argue in relation to you know City and Liverpool has had um, a start you know that isn't that bad, but. It's as usual, you know, you have to extrapolate that out. More United have been this season was not what was expected. And some yeah. of some of the concerns transcend stats, you know, and yeah. what's going on on the pitch. But um, 
But yeah, look, I, I think you know for Ten Hag, I, I wouldn't sack him. Um, uh, but um, and, and and point being to just on the, on the on, on the Graham Potter thing with that, yes, you, you know, uh, Ineos have been looking at contingencies for months. One of the things that I don't like, I've mentioned this before, I don't love when media do this because I know they do. Um, there was that thing with the, like the training and stuff they brought up, like after a loss that we know is months old, months old as a concern, whether it, whatever the validity of it is, it's months old, but then suddenly 50 stories come out at once, you know, to pile on a manager. Then you get a bunch of stories about Ineos would consider Graham Potter as a potential because Eric Ten Hag is under so much pressure. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something for sure. That is two months to three months old information. It is old. That is not a new sudden thing where last week, you know, Brailsford and Blanc had to pop by Grand Potter's house on the way up to Old Trafford when they were visiting and talked to him about taking the job. It is old information. I'm not saying it still isn't true, but it is old information. It is not like they're looking at that because of the state of the current wins and losses over the last few games or anything like that, which is somewhat how it's presented, at least when you kind of look at the whole picture. That's how it looks. It's not like that. There are other names as well. This is Ineos contingency plans. That is what it is. If Eric Ten Hag, what if he walks at the end of the season? I, he has agreements with the Glazers. He has agreements with Arnold that he set up who hired him. He has agreements with Murtaugh. If Murtaugh goes or moves to a different role, which is very likely to happen, um, and there's a new sporting director and there's a new CEO and there's a new board and there's a new way of running things, maybe he doesn't want this job anymore. Maybe he's decided and said, okay, you know, this isn't just the right fit. You never know. I'm not saying you would, yeah. but you never know. You, you may not accept the changes that they're asking for because it's not what he wanted out of the job, which is fair enough yes. if that's the case, you know? So they have to have contingencies for so many reasons, like you said, and, um, and Graham Potter will be one of them. And there certainly will be other names that come up um, in those contingencies as, as things come out, but it's not this sudden thing. You also factor into that then, okay, about Graham Potter, what would make sense? Well, we know that they want someone like Paul Mitchell. We know that, there's been talk about bringing in Ashworth, who worked with Grand Potter at Brighton as well, and is a, is a very successful director. Um, one of the things that I've heard that I think is important uh, to, to mention is United, have, I think it's one of the failures at United, have dumped everything on the manager for such a long time. And it's even where there's the argument that if Ten Hag wanted to stay and continue in this role and have it change, that maybe he'd do a lot better, because I think almost any manager would where they try to make the manager be like Sir Alex was, which was everything. He was everything to everybody. And it doesn't work that way anymore. No, Grand Potter wouldn't succeed in that position at all. And the problem he had, of course, going to Chelsea was that was what was being asked of the manager at that time too. It was right after the club was sold and it was a mess and Todd Bowley had no idea what he was doing. I don't think he still does, but they hadn't appointed, they have all these directors that they have to appoint and, very turbulent time, a very bad time to do it. And he obviously couldn't handle it. It shouldn't be up to the manager to manage all these players individually as people, you know, as employees, he's supposed to coach them. And the view of Ineos is two things is that one, the coach will be a coach. Like they're going to be there on the pitch coaching in training and, and exactly what to do. And that's their primary role that and on match days, they want the director to be much more front facing because we never hear from John Murtaugh ever. 
They want the CEO to be much more front-facing because we never hear from Richard Arnold except when he's down at the pub getting filmed. We never hear from these people. And that is a difference between how Ineos want to do things and approach things. And the, <laughs> and the advantage of that is you get a lot more communication out of them. You hear a lot more from them, which we all want out of the club. That is one of the huge things we want with these, them coming in. And it takes a lot of pressure off the manager. It's not the manager to sit there and defend his ideas for the direction of the whole club. Right now, for most people, Eric Ten Hag, I'm not saying this is the case because of the Glazers, the, you know, because obviously the Glazers are viewed as the ones responsible for where the club are at. But when you look at it on a more day-to-day -day basis, people think it's Eric Ten Hag is responsible for how United are faring week in and week out, day in and day out. And that is, should necessarily, isn't necessarily how it should be. The other factor of it is, okay, if you hire Graham Potter and you have this structure behind him and it doesn't work out, so what? You move on to the next manager and you continue the same direction that you were already continuing in and you try to find somebody better who's going to fit it and could maybe get better results out of it. You're not starting over every time you're making a change. And uh, But that's the only way that I would accept that because I do think he has limitations as far as asking him to be a Sir Alex or a Jose Mourinho or someone like that. He's not going to be that guy ever, well, um, personality-wise. But the people that want that illustrate how little they know about football, in my opinion, because yeah. I, I really think that Woodward wanted to recreate that. You know, yes. They wanted to recreate what happened on the Ferguson. They were constantly looking back. And in some ways, they showed that. I know it wasn't Woodward's call, but by hand, David Moyes, right? In yep. that the problem is football had already moved on, right? And so United yeah. were still sort of stuck in the dark ages because they were still being run in the same way they were being run, you know, 20 years before. Um, now what we know about sports science, about nutrition, about, you know, preparation, about your know, fitness, about, you know, mental health, all these intersectional issues – and that are being run by consummate professionals to get optimal performance from an athlete. And all of these things matter. You can no longer just leave it to one guy and give him a good bollocking in the changing room, give him a good yeah. tackle, yeah. Go, lad. You you can't you you can't do that. So you have to have you know all these uh, synchronized departments being run by consummate professionals, you know, having data anal anal analysis, having you know proper you know uh, uh, doctors, you know, and and integrating all this information so that you can get uh, a human being to perform optimally and to perform to their highest capability. I was listening to something that Klopp was saying um, on a documentary, and this is obvious but true. You know. When you're talking about a professional athlete, you get variance because you're talking about human beings and performance, right? But that variance has to be from, you know, 100 to 95%. It can't be from 100 to 80%. Because once you start getting that, that's where you, that, that big swing is where the inconsistency happens. There's inconsistency yeah. with every human being. That's just the way we're wired. But it's, 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 it's you know, the, where, where's the peak in the trough? And if, if yeah. they're within you know, close proximity because all the other things are right, then you can be successful. Because the probable, when you're 11 players on a pitch, um, you know, five players are at 95, then the other five are at 100, right? You know, and next week, those guys that are 100 at 95 and these guys, so, you know, you can compensate. Yeah. For it. It's not enough anymore just to get 11 good players on a pitch. I mean, I keep yep. hearing the native spent this, spent this. I mean, it's just such an ignorance about what it takes to succeed. Yeah. At that because yeah. all clubs spend, and then it's about, okay, what are you doing to make sure these guys 
can succeed. And then, of course, there's the culture behind them, the players that, um, you know, is, is, is a consequence of the owners. And, you know, when you're, these people have been here 10 years and they're 10 and 10 hard to change the culture and, you know, and, and introduce standards. Why, why would he need to do that? And why weren't the other before, you know, what, you're the CEO, you're the, the, the director of football. That's why, why didn't you do that? Now, why are you asking Ten Hag to do that? You implement standards. You implement culture. He works towards the standards of culture that you want him to reinforce, which again, you know, shows what you're talking about about a manager ruling the whole football club like like, like an autocracy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that just doesn't work anymore. And we see what happens whenever there's weaknesses in that system because the club will then acquiesce with players whenever they don't want to conform to that system and, and allow them to down tools, as they say. Uh, my friend, I'm going to give you an opportunity to clarify a comment that you've taken some heat on Twitter for, which I knew exactly mm -hmm. what you were getting up, but I'm going to let you Oh, no, I'll know exactly what it is. <laughs> so whenever you said they're owner, they're investors, not owners, I knew exactly what you were saying, by the mm -hmm. way, but, but, but I'm not going to speak for you. So yep. that, explain that. Yeah, I think some people considered the definition of investor to mean somebody who puts a lot of money into something, but that's not really what an investor is. Um, one can invest in something in that way, but quite specifically, an investor is just somebody who buys something with the expectation of profit to make money out of. That's the only reason they buy it. If I go to the stock market right now and I buy some shares off the New York Stock Exchange, all I'm expecting back with that is money. I'm not going to invest any time. I'm not going to care. I'm going to watch that graph go up or down, and I'm going to act based upon that. And the Glazers are very much prototypical investors. That's what they are. When you look at United, they bought it for a very small amount of money 20-something years ago, like any, like any property. And they've watched it balloon in value. And they're, the decisions they make every single day at United are about profit. And that's what an investor is, is someone who looks at profit. Uh, an owner... The way they treat the Buccaneers, the way that they treat their NFL franchise, well, it helps because NFL franchises are naturally very profitable too. So there's you can't really divorce that from it. But is the care like it was based on that video, right? Of of Avram, Joel, and them out, you know, clapping and shaking hands with the Buccaneers after they won a game and all of that. Um, there's a care that goes into something when you act like an owner of it, when you're taking responsibility for its well-being which they do with their football team, even though they're not very good at it still, frankly, but they do take some care into it. They do invest their energy and effort and time into it. At United, it's all about financial return. That's it. And that's what I mean by them being an investor. It's a mindset rather than uh, the literal, you know, well, it's literal too, but it's a mindset. Um, if they could see that putting money in would make them more money back, they would do it, but they won't because they don't see it that way. And that's not how they, they view the club, um, which it won't be uh, because football clubs are not made to be profitable. And so that's why they won't put any money into it. And so that's what I was uh, very much intending with that comment. Pretty, I thought it was pretty obvious, but. <laughs> uh, okay. One, one last quick thing. Uh, any yeah. score in UEFA, out of UEFA, uh, obviously trying to make sure there's no conflicts of interest with Nice. Um, I mean, it doesn't look like you've got much to worry about. We need to qualify for the Champions League, but <laughs> uh, uh, no, no. So um, obviously the, the uh, legal minefield and all of this is complex um, and there's so many bits to untangle, but um, I, 
had good information that they were at UEFA last week, making sure that there was no regulatory issues with um, Ineos or with yeah. Ineos United. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, you know, time, we've we've constantly been hearing it's about to happen. It's about to happen. It's about to happen. All that. Um, there's still right now as of right now this they do think it'll be this week this you know they said before christmas a few weeks ago i won't even use that word or two words this week or i know one. this week right that being said there are people i mean jim ratcliffe is in the uk at the moment for the first time in quite a while actually um there's other people who've been around a lot of the details aren't always clear um because so much of this is the legal stuff and is behind so many layers of privacy and things like that. It's hard to say, oh, this is exactly what they were discussing. But there's been a lot happening in the last week on trying to get this totally, totally finished. Um, and so hopefully they will. People who know things have not yet heard of a delay yet. There's reason to have hope at the moment, but Let's just say we hope it arrives under the tree on Christmas and uh, yeah, that for now. And and if it arrives, it's a great, you know, it's great. It's a great gift. It's a wonderful thing to to unwrap and say, great, it's by Christmas. We've got this thing wrapped up and now they can actually move forward. Um, but uh, but we're just gonna have to wait and see because it's you know, again, it's not the type of thing that's like the moment it's all wrapped, it'll it'll be wrapped, it'll be done. Um but so far, there's really it. This I know it seems like it's taking forever. It's not that long, frankly, in comparison to many other investments. I mean, I, I saw the example that you know PSG sold a stake in their club. Mm -hmm. They're private. It took a year for them to do that deal to sell a stake in their club. So you know, as was described as well, I think Orenstein said this too. Why this is so difficult? You have a New York Stock Exchange listed company that's registered in the Caymans, that's part of the UK, that has to deal with UEFA. You're talking about four or five different regulatory bodies in three different countries, four different countries technically, that you have to deal with in getting this all done properly. And because it's publicly listed as well, you cannot you know, take this issue with UEFA, for example. It's very solvable, but you can't sell the club until it's solved. Because you cannot go to your minority investors on the stock exchange and say, we made this investment. By the way, we might be banned from European competitions. You have to solve it before the deal can go through. You have These are all the things that would you wouldn't have to if the company was private, for example. And, and that's really all it comes down to. So It took me, it just, took me a year to fix a water tops in the sink. <laughs> oh, well, sure. <laughs> you know, I can't tell you my a glazer. I, I kept saying the same thing next week. I mean, next week. Well, yeah. next week, next two weeks. Yeah. Swear to God, I'll do it next week. Um, and so, um, I suppose. So, it, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I spoke to some people yesterday and today and said it was everything 100%. So, we yeah. will see. Um, all right, folks, I hope um, you all have a wonderful week. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas or whatever it is yes. you celebrate this time of year, Hanukkah, whatever it is, um, whatever you celebrate with your family. I hope um, you all have a wonderful time. Um, thanks to all of you for tuning in this podcast throughout the year. I'm sure we'll be back next week with four more before. Uh, probably won't be Monday. Monday's Christmas Day, in it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So probably, probably the following or later in the week. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, 
I was actually talking to Franz Hoke, um, who had offered to come on between Christmas and New Year's, so we may have a little bonus podcast there. Yeah. Um, we talked to Franz about what's going on with Eric Ten Hag, um, you know, with Onana and all that stuff. So lots of good stuff there with that. So um, uh, I hope, like I said, I hope you all have a wonderful uh, holidays, whatever it is you celebrate this time of year. I hope you're all safe, and thanks to each and every one of you for downloading our podcast. And, um, same to you, my friend. Have a few glasses yep. of wine for me. Yeah, we'll do you as well and, and really appreciate everybody and have a have a great holiday season. Cheers, folks.